Hello and welcome to episode four of Coping with Creativity, a podcast for creators about coping with that unrelenting need to create, our mental health, self-imposed pressures, actually succeeding, and everything in between. My name is Jesse Lawson, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about distractions. Now, this episode is especially ironic for me since, as you may have already figured out, I am one day behind in my goal of publishing one new episode each week. That's because I spent a lot of time this week working on my audio drama, which is something that really makes me happy, writing, so uh, I'm not going to apologize for it. And of course, working. I do work full-time, too. And something else I was working on this week was learning some React, a JavaScript development framework, and writing an idle game, like one of those uh, idle clicker games. It's open source. It's on my GitHub. You can see the link in the podcast notes or on my website. And feel free to you know follow along or, heck, even develop it along with me if you want. Because, uh, you know, why not? I mentioned irony uh, because I had this idea for this episode uh, for about two weeks ago to cover an episode about distractions. Uh, when I was trying to rebuild myself back up a little after sinking into a kind of dark hole that some of you may be familiar with. Uh, it was an episode I needed at the time, you know, one about distractions. Uh, so I started planning it out. And the weekend approach and all these other things started taking my attention away. And it quickly sat there at the end of the day as something I not only needed for myself, but also something that I just needed to do. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you jump from project to project, never giving up, but never really going back. And I mean really honestly going back to breathe life back into the stack of ideas and half-finished drafts in the drawer. You know, I'm, I'm very jealous of people who can start a thing and then just work on it every day until it's done. That is not something that I can do. I'm jealous because I, I can't, for the life of me, take a project, uh, work on it from the, okay, here's the idea and I'm going to start drafting it and then just keep working on it day in, day out until that project is complete. You know, for me, I'm a writer, so I usually start off with an idea. I'll outline a little bit and then I'll write the ending, maybe the beginning, and then start mudging, you know, muddling up the middle. Um, but I can't just work on that one thing the whole day. I, I have this microphone is sitting on top of a drawer that I have no less than 50 projects uh, that I have worked on in the past, God, week, month. And my brain just goes back and forth between all of them all the time. So I'm jealous uh, because I can't work on something uh, from start to finish. And I think that would be incredible if I could. Um, but of course, we tend to romanticize things that we can't do or can't have. And then, you know, how they always say the grass is always greener on the other side. Well, it's not because on the other side, it's just asphalt. Uh, my brain, and maybe your brain too, uh, hyper focuses on a new project idea for anywhere between, I would say, a day and a week. And then out of nowhere, another great idea comes along and suddenly I'm working on two projects. Eventually, the first project isn't as fun as the second project, so the first project gets abandoned and filed away in the drawer in my desk full of ideas and projects that I always tell myself I'm going to finish one day. And I know I'm not the only one who goes through this. I'm not. Chances are there's something you can think of right now that you started maybe a week, a month, a year ago, and it's been in the back of your mind ever since, and you've been giving yourself excuses for why you haven't finished it. I know I do. The excuses I give to myself sound like, oh, it's still a draft, or uh, I still need to think about it, or you know, I'm still rewriting a scene, or I have this one thing that I always tell people um, that is my way of sort of lying to myself, that I'm always going to be working on something. So this thing that I tell people is this really cool metaphor about a crock pot. 
So I tell people writing a story is like cooking with a crock pot. You add all the ingredients up front and then you let it simmer for a long time while everything slowly comes together. And so that's my way of coming off as like, oh yeah, you know, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, a crock pot, that makes sense. You know, you put the ingredients in, it cooks and over time it gets tastier and tastier. And to a degree, I think that's what a lot of us do. And I think that's what a lot of writers do. Um, but not, you know, not every creator is a writer. And I think that all of us are guilty a little bit of, uh, I guess it's procrastination. You know, we're all a little guilty of, of perpetuating our own procrastination. Uh, I've been using the crockpot excuse forever. I still do. I still, I still do it about my current projects right now. I, I do it about literally about this podcast and the transcripts uh, that I do for this podcast or any planning that I do. I'll say that, you know, like episode five missed, I missed Monday because uh, this episode is a, is a draft, you know, and it's, oh, it's a crockpot and I need the ingredients to simmer. So uh, the way, the, the way I had to get out of it is I just had to listen to what I was saying uh, while I was recording this and, and, you know, or read my notes uh, before I recorded this and, you know, take to heart the stuff that I'm telling other people that they should do. It's, it's sort of like a weird circle of irony. Um, I, I think there's some merit to the idea that sometimes your drafts need to sit in a drawer long enough for you to forget about them so you can re-engage with them with a fresh set of eyes. But you got to learn like what the balance, it's like a balancing act. You got to learn when to go back and, and breathe life into something. And when you're just keeping something because you, you know, don't want to come to terms with its mortality, the fact that it's just that project is dead and you need to shred it and move on. But I'm not talking about I'm not talking about the kinds of projects that we are legitimately letting simmer. I'm talking about uh, I'm talking about ones we're not still working on, even while um, even while we think they're simmering. I'm talking about projects that you started, worked on, and have completely abandoned for something else. I'm talking about that w- weird thing we do when we work on one thing, get bored, work on another, get bored, work on another, over and over and over and over again, while we ignore that thing we're supposed to be working on. And I'm talking about the cycle of avoidance via project hopping. Avoidance via project hopping. And I think that's a real problem that is, is completely self-imposed. And there's that, and this is one of the reasons why the intro to all the episodes for Coping with Creativity mention that this podcast is about our self-imposed pressures. I think a lot of the pressures that we have as creators are self-imposed, and it's completely illogical. If you were to sit someone down and explain to them all the pressures that they have on them at that given moment, any logical person would say, oh yeah, that's all me. You know, I'm, I'm putting all that pressure on myself. Why do we do that? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't make any sense. But we're going to continue to do it. We're going to continue to do it because that is just how our, that's just how we work. That's just how it is being a creator. And I think having all those self-imposed pressures is like, a, it, it's almost like a bittersweet way to look at yourself in the mirror and go, wow, I'm really stressed and I'm not confident in anything that I do. And that, I guess that sort of means that I'm doing it right. And it doesn't make any sense. And that's how you know it makes sense. Because it doesn't make any sense. I think project hopping is the ultimate bane of any creator. Because despite what we tell ourselves about our cool new project, or whatever new thing we're sure we will, uh, that will be amazing, the only thing that's really going on is we are getting distracted. And we're letting ourselves get distracted. 
And it's not always us. Sometimes it's our social norms and mores that are doing it to us. Uh, Jeez, and just today, I got a fun little DM from an old friend who was wondering why I'm not more active on my Twitter. It's ridiculous. In today's world especially, distractions are so ubiquitous that if you don't have 20 social media accounts that you're operating nearly 24-7, and if you don't blog, and if you don't network, and if you don't go to whatever conference, you're seen as like a hermit or a weirdo. But don't let this dictate how you need to spend your time. A lot of people are going to write articles and make whole podcasts and, and, and speak at conferences about how important it is to network and be on social media and, and, and market yourself and market and market and market. That's just, it's, it's almost like you're, it's almost like we are succumbing to the idea that we are not artists and we're not creators. We're just a product in a capitalist system that needs to be marketed. We're just one little product, one one unit of product, and then we need to be our own self-perpetuating marketing campaign around getting someone to, what, like us? Don't let this dictate how you spend your time. Don't. I'll never forget the conversation I had with a friend of mine a long time ago after my book about data science and higher education came out. I don't know if you know this, but I do have a uh, a best-selling novel, a best-selling book. It's not a novel. It's nonfiction on uh, Amazon that's called Data Science and Higher Education. And it's for institutional researchers who want to, uh, I, on the book, I say, take your institution to the next level. You know, hey, that's marketing, right? So my book came out and he was always talking about working on his own book, you know, and I, and I get that. Usually when my colleagues would see, oh, what the heck, you wrote a book? You know, they'll always come up with their own ideas like, oh, you know, I always wanted to write a book or, you know, I'm working on a book myself. This guy in particular was, was you know, was usually always saying, oh, it's really great you wrote a book. You know, I'm, I'm writing a book, too. And he'd always want to talk about his book. Great. But he never actually did any writing. And I always found that very odd. He'd always tell me how easy writing is. And, and, and he'd always uh, constantly harp on me about not being active on Twitter or Facebook at the time. This was, I think, uh, 2014 or 15. I think it's about 2015. He, he'd say things like, you know, you'll never build your brand if you aren't tweeting at least once an hour. You have to stay engaged. You got to stay, got to stay connected. You got to, you know, you got to always be tweeting, always be connecting. The funny thing is that guy still hasn't written that book that he always says will be so easy to write. But he's the first person, funny enough, he's the first person who's going to go on Twitter and complain about how he has writer's block. But you know what the unfortunate part about it is? People like him aren't doing anything out of the ordinary. They're surviving in a world that places value on celebrity and attention. But the problem is they're letting it get in the way of creating. It's one thing to immerse yourself with these platforms that are supposed to connect us better as a way to actually fulfill that need, that human need for socialization. And it's another thing when you're just using it as an excuse to not be creating. Because that's what we're good at. Especially as a writer, I can tell you there is nothing, there is no skill that writers have perfected better than not writing. Seriously, no one is better at procrastination than writers. Connecting is important. It really is. Connecting is important. But connecting isn't creating. And look, I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life. Some people need that connection, and social media is actually their only way of connecting to the world. I get it. 
We are social creatures. But as creators, we're already susceptible to losing focus by anything that will take us out of our creative minds. So we have to train ourselves to manage distractions so that we can get in and stay in the most important mindset of all, creative flow. There's been tons of books written about creative flow. Tons of them. Because creative flow is so important, and smart people recognize how important creative flow is. Creative flow is that mental state where you're 100% engrossed in the work, so much so that time does not exist. The world does not exist. And all that we are, all that we are is this link between our subconscious mind and the art we are creating in that moment. To help us get there and to help us stay there in creative flow, we have to train ourselves on how to recognize and take steps to manage two things that are the enemy of creative flow, life distractions and idea distractions. Life distractions are things that pull you out of your creative thinking that you can't necessarily control. For me, it's my three kids. They're the biggest distraction to getting into a creative flow. They're not a distraction to my life. They are a distraction to creative flow. And that's okay to say. That's okay to admit to yourself. That's not a bad thing. I mean, I love my kids, and and part of being a parent is sacrificing some pieces of yourself in order to help these little sponges grow up into amazing and capable people. I mean, for me, I hope they'll all be creators themselves, and in a way, you might say that they're my own little art project, you know, the ultimate synthesis of what I can contribute to the world. But my trade is writing, and to write well, I personally need silence, I need a dark room, I need a cold room. And I need more silence. Ideally, I guess, uh, I would say my ideal conditions is a dark meat locker. That would be fantastic. For those of you who don't have kids or a spouse or a house or are just able to come home and not worry about obligations, I am so jealous of you. And I know thousands of people are jealous of you too. I'm jealous because when I was there some 10, 15 years ago, I absolutely did not fully appreciate just how much opportunity I had to learn and grow as a creator. I really didn't. And it's sort of funny now that I'm older and I don't have the time I'd like to work on my creations or my projects, how my ability to focus has become sharper and the quality of my work has gone up. But the quantity of my work has gone way down. That might be a function of me having kids, which is something my wife thinks, that uh, having three kids, two of them are twins, um, having all these kids uh, sort of forced my mind to focus on the work at hand or focus on what I was trying to uh, create. And it was, it was a way of me subconsciously honing in on the thing that I was trying to focus on. But other people have other obligations, you know, Kids aren't the only thing that can pull you out of a creative flow in life. You know, plenty of people have a, plenty of people have things like uh, their jobs, like their obligations, like volunteer work, like after school activities, after work activities, social activities. Just because I am a hermit and an introvert and don't need any friends doesn't mean that everybody else in the world uh, wants to live their life lonely and pathetic like me. It's just it's just not the case. So not everybody wants to sit in a dark room and and talk to a microphone like this. 
so for those of us trying to manage life distractions, I do have some suggestions, but I have to remind you that these work for me and your mileage may vary. But I do think this is a good starting point for anybody who's who's trying to figure out how to balance that uh, that life distractions and your creative and your creative mindset. First thing I'd recommend is to find a way to physically separate yourself from your life distractions. Ideally, this means a physical separation, like a like a closed door or a dividing wall, or even working in your backyard or on your porch. Heck, even go in your car. When I was in the Marines, sometimes I would have to go out to my car during lunch and do all of my writing for the day in like a short 20, 25 minute window. Sometimes with my with my car on, with the engine on, and my uh, car would have this nasty old rattle. It was like a, God, what was it? It was like an old 1999 uh, Toyota that uh, the radiator leaked and I had to like push start it and it would only run for like 20 minutes, which was just enough time to get to work. And before every, you know, the radiator fluid would be squirting everywhere. But I would use that as sort of like my timer um, but like, oh, radiator fluid is leaking. So it's, it, I guess I'm done writing. And that was sort of my, uh, the sort of like a pseudo Pomodoro technique that I sort of, uh, I guess invented for myself. Everybody's different, but that's what worked for me. Physically separating myself from, uh, you know, the distraction of colleagues, the distraction of, of anything else that that's going on other people, basically that could pull me out of, of a state where I could end up in creative flow. Anything to remove anything to remove yourself from the world and get into the world of our heads will have a positive net benefit on your work. And if you can't physically separate yourself from the real world, try tuning out so that you can, you know, tune in. Try to pick up a, a pair of noise-canceling headphones if you can, uh, if you don't already have some. Anyone, earbuds are fine, doesn't matter, cheap ones are fine. If you're like me uh, and you have kids, you can do the, the one-ear-in method which is where I'll have one headphone stuffed into my ear and I'll be listening to like white noise or something. And then I'll have the other ear open so I can listen to whatever the heck transformers or power Rangers or blues clues or whatever the heck is playing. Uh, Usually it's the same Pixar movie, you know, on repeat. And then, you know, that way if a kid's screaming, I can get up and go help. And then I, again, I, I am so jealous of people who, who can just sit and have just hours with no distractions and it's, it's so crazy when I meet people who can spend an entire Saturday child-free and distraction-free and they won't get anything done, but they'll, they'll lament about this romanticized idea of what writing is. It's so insane. It's, just, it's so insane. But again, I am so jealous of, of someone who, who, can, who, can, who doesn't even need noise-canceling headphones because their house is just always quiet. So I, I guess the takeaway from the takeaway from this is if you're listening to me telling you to use voice canceling headphones and you're thinking, why would I do that? My house is already quiet and wonderful. You are in a position that 90 percent of writers wish they could be in. So please cherish it. Once you figure out a way to separate yourself physically, at least in some way from the real world, so you can tune in to the creative one. The next thing you'll need to do is to start setting like work times. I don't have the ability to stick to a schedule myself. I know a lot of people who set their alarms early and wake up and write every single day before work. And I know a lot of other people who have like a dedicated time every night just so they can work on their writing. I, I can't do that. Just knowing that there is a dedicated time frame that's coming up would be enough to give me so much anxiety about getting something accomplished in that period that I would end up just moping in the guilt of having set this dedicated time away from my family and obligations instead of actually writing. 
I would, I would just, I would be pathetic. And maybe part of me just doesn't want to be back in that state of mind where I had to run to a car and, and wait, you know, and, and, and write vigorously for 20 minutes in a little hot car. You know, I, I don't really know the subconscious processes as to why I don't like that and why I don't like deadlines. Um, you know, that famous quote from Douglas Adams where he loves the whooshing sound they make as they go by. I don't operate well when there is a self-contained unit of time in the future that I can see coming up that I know I'm supposed to be writing. Everyone is going to be different about that. You know, maybe you can set a schedule and work off it. That's cool. Uh, for me, I work better when I am like semi-spontaneous. If I'm doing something and then suddenly realize I could disappear upstairs for an hour in that moment, just go. That is how I am most productive. Other times I'll just, you know, make a mental note like, okay, tonight I'll be writing at least a page of a draft, but I can't set like a time. I can't be like, you know, at 8.15 and then proceeding to 9.15, I will be writing at the keyboard and my fingers will never, you know, let up from the keys. I, I, I've, I'm just not able to do that. And maybe none of this applies to you. And sometimes you just have to get creative with how you dedicate your time to your work. Only you know what will work for you. You know, what, what works for me with, with my kids and my full-time job isn't going to work for everybody. I get that. Only you will know what will work for you. But whether you're able to get away with it or just have to hide with your headphones, life distractions are only part of the puzzle. The other type of distractions, and in my mind, the worst type of distractions that we have to train ourselves to mitigate are idea distractions. This is the worst type of distraction to creators because it's when a new idea creeps in and takes over all of our creative juices. I used to have what I thought was a good strategy for when new ideas would come into my head, and it went something like this. I would be writing, or I'd be doing whatever, and then I'd get a new idea, and I'd say, okay, I'm going to stop what I'm doing, and I'm going to write as much of this new idea as I can. I'm just going to write until my hand hurts, until I can't write anymore, until all my ideas are gone. just going to open it up and just completely engross myself in this new idea. Then I'm going to stop, I'm going to put it away until I'm done with the first project. And you know what? That that never worked. Not once. All the energy I put into the new idea would quickly take over my attention and the old project was no longer fun anymore. Not when I had this new one to play with. Not when I just opened up the spigot of my creativity and I'm completely engrossed into something else. I don't want to lose new ideas but I also don't want them to take over all of my creative energy because I want to finish what I'm currently working on. So now, instead of stopping to pour all of my thoughts out, I do something differently. Now I'll force myself to condense the idea into a single note card or basically just enough words to fit into the equivalent of a tweet. From there, I'll file it away to work on after I've made some progress on my current project. But by forcing myself to only fill up like a standard three by five note card and not letting myself write any more, just, you know, just ripping the tail off that creative flow, I am more able to focus in on the project that I was previously working on. However, there is a caveat. One can absolutely see how that is awful, because if I have this long creative tail that I just ripped off and I'm just leaking creative energy from this new project... How can I possibly focus on the old one? Well, for me personally, I work, I work in the opposite of the way a logical person would work. 
So if I have a bunch of creative energy coming from a new idea that's sort of spilling into the old idea that I was trying to get done, that new creative energy sort of motivates me to finish that first idea. And, you know, I'm usually doing this in the com- in the context of writing. So if I have a scene I'm writing for, let's say, my audio drama, but then a new scene for my novel pops in my head, I'll just go ahead and jot down what I want to have happen in that scene and then go back to finishing the the scene from my audio drama. In the back of my mind, I think my brain is still working out all the excitement about that new scene that I'm writing for my novel, even though my fingers are still writing the audio drama. For me, I can sort of take creative energy from one project and sort of rechannel it into another one temporarily. But I get I get people who say they can't do that. That that totally doesn't make any sense. And I'm, I'm thankful that I can do that. But again, just like everything else, your mileage is going to vary. If you're like this, you know, if you're like me or if, if, if you hop from project to project from because of this uh, thing that I call idea distraction, you'll have to do what I do and actively avoid your new ideas. You have to because my brain is like a spigot. And if your brain is like mine, then it's also a spigot. And you're going to drown in the new idea and forget all about what excited you about what you're currently working on. It's going to drown you. And ironically, this podcast is a perfect example of that. I should be working on my audio drama. And I am. But I have decided to double my workload and do this podcast. And a game. And music. And my novel. I'm, I'm a wreck. I feel like I'm a wreck. But logically, I can step back and know that I am a somewhat prolific wreck. I I have been told by many people that they are jealous that I can create a lot of things and that I have created a lot of things. But when people say that, and even now that I'm telling you that, I don't I don't feel like like I have like a special thing to tell you. And that's the whole point of this podcast. Every single episode, I'm trying to explain that everything you're working through, everything that you're trying to overcome, like managing your distractions, is what I do. We're not any different. You're probably a better creator than I am. The only difference between somebody who is a writer and is not a writer, or is a creator and is not a creator, is that the person who is one just did the thing. That's it. The only difference between me and somebody who wants to write a book is that I wrote a book. The only difference between me and somebody who wants to start a podcast to help other creators is that I started a podcast to help other creators. That's it. You just got to do it. You just have to do it. But the one thing we're going to always do is we're always going to find a way to distract ourselves from doing it. I am guilty of that, even as the person who hosts this podcast. There's a reason this episode is coming out a day late. It's because I got distracted, because I let myself get distracted. And sometimes it can be a good thing. I really do think so. I, I think sometimes sometimes a rigid schedule hurts us. This weird, like, Soviet work clock. It's just not how we work. It's not how creative people work. It's not how I work. I can't have... I know this sounds weird, but I can't have the concept of time looming over my shoulders. I just need to be in this, like a dark room. I need silence. 
And I just, I need to just let my head exist in the moment. Because in that moment, it could be a second goes by or an hour goes by. I have no idea. But the creative flow is occurring. I hope that by categorizing your distractions as either life distractions, which you have to physically separate yourself from, and idea distractions, which you have to creatively separate yourself from, that you'll find ways that work for you to focus in on your creations and finish them. In next week's episode, I'm going to be talking about uh, perseverance, especially through the low points after the honeymoon phase. And mitigating distractions is key to doing that. But we can't just we can't just listen to a podcast or read a book and then, oh, okay, great. Now I can just do A, B, and C, and now I won't get distracted anymore. We have to consciously train ourselves to stop being distracted. We have to we have to train ourselves. It's work. I think it's right after the honeymoon phase of a new project. You know, when when the cosmic existential doubt about the project, your work in general, and then your very existence come like overcomes you in your thoughts that we start to become susceptible to distractions. And then again, right at the end of the project, we get susceptible to distractions because somewhere deep inside us, we are afraid of finishing it. In a way, you could say that we're probably subconsciously welcoming these distractions because deep down, we are afraid of what's going to happen if we ever really finish this project. Finishing it means we have to share it. Finishing it means People are going to see it and judge it and ascribe value to it. Finishing it means that it's no longer in our control. And that scares us. And that's okay. That's okay. Because because we are not robots. We're going to feel scared. But just like with our children, we have to learn to let go to let our art go out into the world and just be itself. Stop talking about it. Stop talking for it. Just let it speak. That's what art does. And that's what we do as creators. We create and then we let go. Don't fall for the trap of distractions. The grind must drive you. Get into your creative flow and stay there. Get your work finished and get it out there in the world. You can do it. Manage distractions while you're focused on one idea and manage new ideas so that they don't become distractions. And like I said last time, for the love of everything in this universe, never stop creating. It's now time for our next segment, Immediate Questions, where I read a script that you've submitted and give you all of my immediate questions I have as a means of giving you a little bit of insight into what one audience member, me, may be thinking. Today's three pages comes from a script called Becomes the Prey by Taylor Jones. We start black. We hear light yet consistent tapping. In a waiting room, open on a bouncing shoe the source of the annoying tapping. Ray Howard, 19, Latino-Caucasian mixed, skinny, sits in a dim, empty room. Ray's face is covered with anxiety. 
A dried cut sits over his eyebrow, bruises on his arms along with a tattoo peeking from under his sleeve. A door opens. D'Angelo, early 20s, thuggish, the exact opposite of Ray, walks in. He looks down at Ray, stone cold. D'Angelo. It's time. Ray stares at the ground, his leg bouncing faster. D'Angelo. Hey, don't pussy out. Ray, I'm not. D'Angelo. You're taking your sweet time. You wanted to meet Nico, right? He's waiting. You need to swallow your fear for the time being Ray defensive. I'm not scared, D'Angelo. I'm not. He jumps up, walks to the door. D'Angelo places his hand on Ray's shoulder to stop him. D'Angelo, sympathetic. You need to know, being here means doing things you don't want to do. Things that are cruel. They face the door together. Inside a warehouse. Ray and D'Angelo enter a large room lined with at least 100 men dressed like thugs, all armed. Ray, overwhelmed, is led down the middle as everyone disperses. He stops. In the middle of the room, a prisoner, tied to a chair with his mouth gagged, his shirt drenched in blood and sweat. Next to the man is a table covered with various weapons, but one sticks out. An axe. Ray's face loses color. Cut to black. Nico, voiceover. Did you feel God? Ray's house at night. Past. The porch swing moves back and forth with Alex, 18, handsome, athletic, sitting in it. Front porch. Text across the screen says, seven months earlier. The night is peaceful. Alex, you know Mrs. Torres told me to see her after class this morning? Ray turns to Alex. Ray is a shrimp compared to what we saw previously. No tattoos exist either. Ray, you flunking? Alex, you don't flunk with these looks. Ray, Jesus Christ, your vanity reeks. Alex, laughing. No, I'm not flunking, but get this. She offered to tutor me. Ray, why do you need tutoring? Alex eyes him. You know why. Ray, you're full of shit. Alex laughs. Alex, I swear to God, man. She's like 40, Alex. I mean, I told her no thanks. It was just odd. Ray grows serious, almost uncomfortable himself. Ray, how are things going with Madison? Alex, good, real good. We had our first date Saturday, hoping for another. Ray nods and looks at the ground, nothing to add. Alex, why don't you like her? Ray, I never said I didn't. Alex, I've seen the look on your face when she's around, or if I mention her. Ray looks away, a long beat of uncomfortable silence. I just gotta say, I really like this script. I, I like these three pages because uh, it adheres to my philosophy of heavy impact, uh, minimalism, and uh, putting a lot of artistic value right up front. Already, I think there's a, there, there are a lot of questions that one could ask, uh, but I've distilled mine down to three. So here are my immediate questions. One, the relationship between D'Angelo and Ray it obviously has pre-existed the new relationship dynamic that was to come from wherever they were, the place where D'Angelo mentioned as, quote, being here. Is this a bond that is strengthened by whatever inhumanity occurred with the prisoner in that whole scene? Or will whatever happened, I'm assuming it has to do with D'Angelo, Ray, and that axe, pull the proverbial thread that starts to erode whatever they have between them? Question two. The voiceover with Nico asking if he felt God. I can see this as something that pertains to the prisoner scene, but also as a sort of Chekhovian hint at a future philosophical argument about whether killing someone with an axe is justified or not based on whether we discover that this prisoner person did, or based on what we, what we discovered they did, 
And is this, in fact, a sort of Chekhov's moral dilemma, or is this a hint of a different type of future interaction, one between this Nico guy and Ray as a sort of shedding of a skin of innocence and diving deeper into the immortality that is felt by cold-blooded killers? And question three, the story goes back seven months after that prison scene, which is a long time before we're here with Ray about to kill someone with an axe. Is Alex from the second part the prisoner from the first part? Is that what's going on here? Or, or is Alex going to represent for Ray some sort of emotional loss or turmoil that exacerbates Ray's proclivity toward whatever violent or criminal or whatever activity that leads directly to the opening scene? Or maybe Alex is a nobody. In that case, is there somebody else who fits that paradigm? And so those are my immediate questions. Uh, thanks again to Taylor Jones for submitting that script. And that wraps up this episode. I appreciate you taking the time to listen, and I hope you found it useful. The full transcript of this episode and all episodes is available online at copingwithcreativity.com, along with links to my Patreon page where you can support this podcast and all of my work. Also, my Patreon page has a new intro video that's quick, fun, and to the point, so check that out. And if you want me to keep producing podcasts like this, uh, pledge a dollar or more each month, and I'll give you behind-the-scenes access to the production of Coping with Creativity, Blake Page, Evolved, Kane, and any other project that I'm currently working on. And as always, thanks for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.